typically um, I'll be speaking every week in the school, yeah, um, possibly a couple of times every now and again every week. Um, but typically, I, I like to do a couple of full days in the school just to kind of um, kind of unload a few things on you, hit you with uh, some pretty intense stuff, and then you can process for the rest of the year. And most of my follow-up sessions will just be Q and A, processing what happens in the next two days, um, which is what, what I like to do. You know, I like to just dump truck on top of people, and then they kind of go, "I don't know what to do with anything anymore." Um, so those are just visiting for this trip. Good luck for the rest of your lives because um, you're going to have a lot to process. Um, no. Um, so typically we walk through Romans, but I want to start, first of all, just um, kind of building a bit of a framework. So we might do a session slash two sessions, just building a framework before we dive into um, working our way through the book of Romans. Um, because I think there's some fundamental things that we need to um, uh, have as we approach scripture. I think a lot of us um, can really be picky and choosy as we approach scripture, or at least we often forget that we read scripture with a bias, right? I mean, does anyone here not read scripture in a bias, right? Obviously not. Yeah, we all read what we think and what we believe and our worldview and our experiences and all of that. We, we take that to the scripture. And actually, the only way to remotely protect ourselves from that is to admit it. And to go, yeah, of course I'm going to do this, but I'm now aware of it. And so I'm going to start challenging how I'm reading the scripture. So when we open up a book and we read something and we go, oh, that obviously means this, this, and this about my life. We probably have to take a step back and go, hold on. I'm, I'm personally interpreting it that way because I'm focused on me. I'm a, I'm a selfish human being that wants it to be about my life. But maybe it's actually not primarily about me. In fact, I would go as far to say as nothing in the Bible is primarily about you. It was written about someone else at another time in another place. Um, the author did not have you in mind. Um, you know, take away God being the author. But like, you know, when Paul's writing his letter to Timothy, he's not thinking, oh, well, Sophie, two and a half dozen, or 2,000 years from now, we'll be reading this. And this is what it'll mean to her situation, right? He's not thinking that at all. Um, he's writing to Timothy, you know? What's amazing is that God inspires it and he breathes into it. And, and, and because of that, with him dwelling in us, as we open up that scripture, it suddenly comes to life and it means something to us. But it wasn't written to you. And so we have to be aware of that as we, we approach the scriptures. There's, there's biases that we bring that unless we're honest with our bias, we're going to potentially really twist and, 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 and uh, morph the scripture into what we want. And, and that can be a really dangerous place, right? And we, we don't have to look very far throughout history to see how dangerous that can be, right? I mean, the Bible was on the Nazi side. The Bible was on the slave owner's side. The Bible was on the side of those who uh, put women under their feet, right? I mean, the Bible has been on a lot of people's sides that we wouldn't say it was. But at the time, they argued with their Bible, Um. And so, again, we just have to be really conscious that we're not doing that. Hopefully, we're not going to start our own Nazi regime. But, you know, but maybe in a smaller scale, <laughs> we're not doing some of these things. You know, we're not reading the Bible and going, oh, that totally endorses my, um, my political view or this uh, view on how to raise my kids or whatever it is. Maybe, but actually, you could be reading into this. And this is what um, it's scholarly called eisegesis. So you have exegesis and eisegesis are the two ways that you can read uh, the Bible hermeneutically. Um, so eisegesis is when you read your opinion into the Bible. So you pick up a Bible verse, you read it, and you go, oh, that's what it means because of what you already believed. Exegesis is when you read the scriptures and it comes 
into life, into you and impacts you and changes your beliefs, your way of seeing things. And hopefully that's what we do when we read the Bible, right? We, 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 we will have exegesis. We will experience that exegesis of reading something. It, it, it comes out of the scripture and into our lives rather than us reinforcing what we already believe in the Bible. Now, hopefully a lot of us believe the right thing anyway, right? Hopefully a lot of us believe a lot of things about the Bible that are right. And so we, we will perform exegesis on some levels where we read it and we go, oh yeah, that's what I believe, you know? And, it, and so hopefully that's, that's okay most of the time. Um, but what I wanted to talk about anyway, I don't know even why I said all that, because that's not even what I want to talk about. But there you go, something to <laughs> chew on. This is going to happen a lot. So get used to my methods. Um, this is what happens when you don't have any notes for like, you know, 12 hours of teaching. Um, <laughs> what I really wanted to talk about initially, though, is, is God, us, who we are, why we're here, who is God. Um, because I think before we look at the scriptures, we have to look at the, the, the reason we have the scriptures, who, who, who wrote the scriptures, right? Outside of Paul, John, Matthew, David, all these different people. Moses didn't write the Bible, don't worry. Um, you know, all these different um, people, we actually need to take a step back and go, well, actually, God is the one that, that has been orchestrating this thing from the beginning. And so who is this God? And actually, the beginning is where I like to um, spend a lot of time. I've spent a lot of time the last few years just mulling over the, the beginning of the world and the beginning of the universe or creation or whatever kind of um, language you give it. And it really fascinates me. I don't know about you guys, but do you, ever, do you ever think, like, what the heck is going on with the Bible? Does anyone ever think this, right? Okay. Yeah. I think it's a lot. But one of my favorite things is, right, the Bible is like this this gift from God. And it tells us all these amazing things. And it tells us, you know, the the history of the Jewish people. It tells you the origins of man. It tells you, um, you know, who Jesus is and what he did. And it tells you all these amazing things, right? And then you look at it and you think, you know what? It's distinctly lacking in a lot of areas, right? You can shoot me later for this, right? But where does the Bible detail how to pray, right? I mean, you'd think that's a pretty important one. If this is a how-to manual... It's not the most like verbose like um, description on how to pray. I mean, you've got the Lord's Prayer. Maybe Jesus gives us a few, this is how you pray. But even that, it's a bit ambiguous on many levels, right? Because do we just repeat that over and over? Or do we use it as a model, a framework? So that sentence could be, oh, so at the beginning we worship God in heaven. So we do that. And then we move on to, right? I mean, this is not exactly the most clear cut instruction. How to heal. What's your favorite Bible verse on how to heal? There isn't one. There's lots of examples of people healing, but they're each as different as any. Sometimes to heal people, you open up someone's roof and lower them through. Another time, you rub mud in their eyes. Other times, you just walk by and get your shadow on them, right? I mean, <laughs> other times, you touch them and you lose it. And some only come out from prayer and fast, right? And you're like, this is not a helpful instruction manual, right? I mean, if this is what God wanted the Bible to be, he did a terrible job, if we're honest, right? Where does it tell you how to prophesy? It doesn't. It tells you, prophesy. I hope you prophesy more than any other spiritual gift. So good luck with that. <laughs> right? It's like, come on, Paul. Tell us how to do it. Um, do, do, you know, do you see what I mean by this? And, and so one of the things that I find really fascinating about this, right? Because I, I actually I love um, science and, and, and just I love information. You know, I go into a museum. I could spend an hour in the first corridor. I'm the one that reads every word on each plaque. And like, I just love it. So most museums that people like meander through in a day, I could like spend weeks in there just going from one section to another. Um, I just love information. And so 
on one level, this is another reason the Bible really annoys me sometimes because I'm like, give me the details, right? Because if we look at the Bible as, as this explanation as well of, of how God does things, why God does things, and all this different stuff, um, we turn to the beginning of the Bible, right? The, 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 the poem Genesis, and please bear in mind when I say poem, I don't mean it's not true, okay? So don't shoot me yet. Um, but it is a poem. It's, it's, it's written as a poem. It's got stanzas and it's written with certain words and certain numbers of words and all this different stuff. So this poetic um, book, Genesis, um, or at least Genesis 1 through 11 is poetic. Um, it, it's, it's written and we go, okay, this is how God created the world, right? So we open it and we, we read it as an instructional, historical, uh, factual, scientific outlining of how God created the world. Many people do. I'm not saying everyone does. So we open it and go, okay, on the first day, God did this. And the second day, God did this. And the third day, God did this. Um, and I, I personally don't know if that's necessarily how we're supposed to read this book at all. I'm not sure that's what the author of Genesis was doing, was answering how did God create the earth as a, as a structural uh, plan. But more concerning to me is it's completely void of much information, if you read it that way, right? It's, it's actually not that satisfying. If you want to know how God created the world and why God created the world, there's not really much there on black and white. Really, right? I mean, why did he do it? Well, it doesn't really say. How did he do it? Well, he, he spoke. It just happened. And the order, well, this happened on the first day before there was a sun and a moon. How was our day? Well, uh, I don't know. He set a watch. Don't, right? It's, it's like, it's not the most detailed um, book, is it? I mean, at the end of the day, for what we want it to be at times. Of like, why are we here? What's going on? How did you create us? Who are we? It doesn't really even tell us who we are in some ways, right? And I think a lot of that is because we come at um, a lot of the Bible from a Greco-Roman perspective. We, we have a modern westernized view of approaching the scriptures. And, and we'll talk about scriptures more in, over the next few days, but What's interesting is the Jews did not have an uh, approach to the Bible that we do at all. In fact, the way the Jews approach Bible is so radically different to how we approach the Bible. It's scary. Um, it would make most evangelical theologians nervous because the Jews did not see the Bible as a black and white text. They just didn't. Whereas today, most uh, evangelical Christians is black and white. It's like, it says this. That's why I believe I'm going to do this. But unfortunately, also what this, it says this could mean we should have slaves or we should kill all the black people and the Jews and this, right? I mean, so again, it says this can become a lot of weird things. But that's how we approach it. It says this, it's black and white, boom, boom, boom. The Jews actually had a really ebbing and flowing approach to the scriptures, the, the Torah, the instructions, and, and the whole um, uh, Talmud, the, the Pentateuch, um, it's really interesting, in fact, um, that rabbis would have, an, uh, and we talked about this last week, didn't we? Um, rabbis would have uh, their yoke, um, and, and a yoke was what they believed about the Torah, about the way, about the instruction, and it was their interpretation. And different rabbis would have different interpretations. And this is what makes it so cool when Jesus says, come follow me, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You know, like, it's a really interesting, it takes on a whole new meaning, right? Because we're just thinking about like, and we, how many sermons have you heard? Oh, it's like an oxen and you, you bear the yoke. And it's, yeah, that's true. But why did they do that? Because they were talking about the yoke that people had to carry based on a certain, a certain set of instructions and, and ways of approaching the Torah. 
And so Jesus comes along and says, my yoke is easy. The way I interpret the scriptures, it's easy. It's not going to be hard for you to follow. That would be a radical message to Jews because I tell you what, there was not one other person that was preaching an easy way to approach these things, right? It's 600 plus laws. You've got a whole bunch of different stuff. And Jesus goes, oh, no, no, no. It's going to be easy. Don't worry. That's a radical like um, approach. And so these rabbis had different views. And the reason for this is, did you know that a rabbi, to be able to preach a view on a portion of scripture, so they grab a portion of scripture and they go, right, Genesis 13, right? Because they had chapters and verses and even book names, right? Um, <laughs> so they grab a passage of scripture, right? We're going to turn to Genesis 13, open your scrolls. Um, and they would preach what they believed. But to be able to preach what you believed as a rabbi, you had to have at least seven contrary beliefs about that passage you had to know there were at least seven interpretations before you could preach this is mine what would it look like if before you said anything about what you believe about the scripture you open the bible and you go oh well i think jesus is saying in john 13 what would it look like if before you said that you had to come up with seven different approaches of what it could mean i guarantee your approach to the scripture would be much more broad and much more deep and you probably get much more out of it right and this is how the Jews um, approach the scriptures. And, it, and we see this even in the Bible. A lot of people really get nervous and really work hard to wiggle around it. But the Bible corrects itself, right? Jeremiah goes, well, you say that that happened, but it didn't. <laughs> You're like, what? Right? I mean, what do you do with that? Like, what do you do when the prophet says, Moses came down, from, when he went up to Sinai, he didn't come down with commandments. Have you ever come across that? That's a pretty brash statement from Jeremiah. He didn't come down with commandments. Do you know what's funny as well? The NLT, the NIV, the, um, I think CEV is a few translations. They change it to Moses didn't come down just with commandments. They add it in because they're like, well, he did come down with commandments because it's this part. Right? But all the, all the prophets going is, going, look, Moses didn't come down with commandments. That's not what he was about. He was coming down with relationship with something else, with something deeper. And so he sees something. He opens up that scripture and goes, there's much more to this than just some rules. And so what does it look like to have a Jewish approach to the scripture or at least an honest approach to the scripture? Because I think a lot of times we forget that the scripture is written um, not as one text, not by one person, um, not for one audience, and certainly not in one way. So you have Genesis is poetic. You have um, Exodus is more of a historical, uh, chronological historical um, book that explains what happened to who and how it happened and how it progressed. Um, similar books would be like Kings and Samuel and Chronicles, right? Those are like, this is what happened and this is how it progressed, but written to different people and changed for different audiences. Um, we have Psalms, songs, right? Do you read a song the same way you read a history book? Hopefully not, right? Proverbs, little one-word throwaways, you know? Little one-liners from Bill Johnson you don't read in the same way as a brief history of the 19th century in Kazakhstan, right? I mean, that's not the same approach to how you approach those two different things, right? <laughs> I bet you that book exists page turner um do you read um a prophetic book like revelation the same way you read job a play some of you might not have known job as a play job's a play um so this, these different um books and and letters and 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 gatherings of history were written to different people in different ways and we have to understand what they are and that's why i hammer home genesis is 
a poem. So you've got really amazing things in Genesis that we see. You know, um, the word God is used seven times. The first line has seven syllables. The second line has 14 syllables. The third line has 21 syllables. There's this rep- repetition of seven, 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 seven. Um, God says it, uh, uh, he uses the, the term good 21 times. You know, you've got all this constantly repeating on sevens. There's rep- repetition of sevens. There's repetition of tens. There's repetitions of fives. And there's all these repetitions all the way through the Genesis, the first uh, creation story, Genesis 1 through 2, 4. Um, and so there's something in this that actually we miss when we read it as a history book because you don't open up your history book and go how many times does it say good how many syllables are in this right but that's what you do in a poem right how many if you studied english in school and when you you were told to look at poems you had to look at you know how was it structured is there this is there that i mean this is how you approach something like that and so when we open up genesis we actually see there's a lot more to this than meets the eye initially because there's something going on um, more than just a historical outline. Now, if you want to believe that it is also um, factually, scientifically, historically correct, if you want to believe that it says that the earth was built in say, six days and therefore it was built in six days, that's okay. It doesn't take away from that that it's poetically written. But what I would encourage you to do is don't just read it as this historically happens. You've got to dive deeper into this passage. Um, because if you don't, you'll miss all this good stuff that's in there. And so, for example, let's look at um, this first creation story, Genesis 1, 2 through 4. Most people don't know is a copy. It's a copy of another story that already existed. Okay. again, I don't want you to unravel your whole world and, you know, ruin the Bible again. God's really good at doing what he does. And he's he's clever about this. But Genesis 1, 2 through 4 um, is uh, a polemic poem so polemic means um something that's written to like kind of push against uh the current uh perspectives and, and kind of aggravate and to to pull out something new and so someone has uh, god has inspired someone not moses unfortunately sorry guys um to write this uh, this poem um to push against a current story so let me tell you the current story the story that everyone in the world knew everyone in the known world already had a creation story they had a creation story for about 1,300 years before Genesis, and everyone believed this creation story, okay? So in the beginning, there were the gods, okay? Already, wait, hold on. This is different to ours, right? How does ours start? In the beginning was God. So we've already got something that is contrasting. And the gods were constantly warring with each other for who was in charge, you know, and so one day this god would be in charge, the next day this god would be in charge. And then this god would seem good, but you know, he'd wake up the next day and be in a bad mood, and so he'd kill some other gods or kill some this and that. And they were constantly in strife and chaos and conflict. But eventually they decided, let's create a, a universe and a world. Um and so they created the universe um and they were fairly happy with the universe. Um but one god decided, I'm done with this god being in charge. He rose up and he killed that god and he ripped him in half. And as he ripped him in half, in the middle, he created earth out of his body. And then what he did um, was displaying his power of killing the, the main god in charge. He was now in charge. He was now the boss. But the other god says, we don't have to look after that world. We can't be bothered. We're not your slaves. You look after it. And he's like, I'm not looking after it. You guys are going to look after it. So what they decided mutually was they got the wife of the God that used to be in charge because the gods used to marry and they ripped her in half. And when they ripped her in half out of her, they created man and woman people and they became the slaves to the gods to look after this world. 
And so it goes on and on, and there's a flood, and there's all sorts of different stuff. And, you know, so there's all these different um, parallels. There's twins that one kills the other. So there's all these different parallels of, of the Genesis 1 through 11 narrative. But what's interesting to me about this is if we look at the structure of Genesis 1, 2 through 4, and we see, oh, my gosh, this poem is structured like the other poem. What's going on here? So is God just running out of ideas and he has to copy? I mean, is that what, what the story of Genesis 1 is? I don't think so, personally. I think God's a bit more creative. And actually, I, you look at all these sevens and 21s and goods and all the different elements. It looks like God is really creative, in fact, and he really knows what he's doing. But what's interesting is he's actually grabbing a story that was already known, already told. And this story would have been told long before it was written. You know, so Genesis was written, what, 3,700 years ago, or give or take? Um, Whereas the um, Enuma Elish, which was the original story, was probably written about 5,000 years ago. So, you know, it's a big difference. But they were probably told each of these stories a long time before that. Um, so you can imagine they would tell this story over and over again. In the beginning were the gods and they were in conflict and whatever. Because this was the answer to why are we here? Humanity's biggest question, right? The question we all have on our hearts is, why am I here? What's my purpose? Why is there a world? Is there a God? All these questions, they were answered in this story. In the beginning, there were gods. There's lots of gods. Don't worry. There's a God of the rain, the God of the sun, the God of the, the harvest, the God of the, the, the river, the God of the sea. There's a, there's a God for everything. Don't worry. There's gods, and they're in control, and, and it's great. Well, why am I here? Well, you're, you're a slave for the gods. You do what they want, and they'll look after you if you do what they want. And all of a sudden, the writer of Genesis comes on board. And he's a genius because this story has been told hundreds of times. Everyone has heard this story over and over and over again. And the writer of Genesis comes in and goes, let's talk about creation. And everyone's like, yeah, I love this story. It's really great, right? This is the, the centerpiece of my faith, of, of whatever I, my faith is in, right? This is the centerpiece of it. And he goes, in the beginning was God. Question, what? <laughs> right? Because this has never happened. And actually, as we look um, uh throughout the, the historical records and, and writings, and even as we study um, sacrifices and, and artifacts that are left anthropologically, this is the first time uh, the, the onset of the, the Jewish religion coming through Genesis, this is the first time we have a monotheistic concept. First time. There's never been a God. There's always been gods. And lots of them. So this comes out of nowhere, and everyone's going, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. In the beginning was God? Just one? Which God? Which, which, which God is the God? Is it the God of the rain, the God of the sun, the God of the sea, the God of the, the moon? Which God is it? Because we need to know which is the God. And it's like, no, just God. That's a, what do I do with that, right? And this God is good. I mean, that is the overwhelming principle when you start to read it as a poem, it's going over and over. This, this God is complete. He's whole. Seven is the number of wholeness and completeness. Um, and he's good, and he's good, and he's good, and he's good. He consistently is good. He does good. Everything he makes is good. This is such a drastic difference because we had gods that were in conflict. Some were good. Some were bad. The bad ones could become good the next day. The good ones could become bad the next day. And they could kill each other. It was unstable. There was no stability in heaven. There was no completeness. There was no wholeness. There was no goodness. And actually, what did they create? Well, they created slaves and beings and us. And God doesn't create slaves. He creates humans. And he creates them in his image and likeness. But have you ever thought about that phrase? We, we like to use that phrase in a variety of different ways. But that phrase actually has significant meaning to someone that was reading this text initially. 
again, we have to take a step out of our world where we read it the way we want to and go, how was this read initially? Because in this time, this kind of Mesopotamian culture, um, the phrase image and likeness had a really significant meaning. Um, Image and likeness was something that was bestowed on one person who would represent God. And so in the Egyptian culture, Pharaoh, initially, Pharaoh had the image and likeness of God. It was his phrase, image and likeness. But actually, that evolved into Pharaoh became one of the gods, didn't he? Um, but in other cultures, the Babylonian culture, the Mesopotamian culture, um, the Canaanite culture, there was always the ruler of that. So the king, the, the leader, whatever it was, um, it, it, autonomous cities would have like um, almost like a mayor figure or a, a leader, and they would have image and likeness. This phrase was used of them, and it was, I speak for the gods. I represent God. If you see me, you see God. That was what it meant, which has a pretty significant meaning now. When we open it and it says, in the beginning, God created man and woman. That's it. Man and woman. All men and women in his image and likeness. Whoa. We all represent God. We all speak for God. We are all mouthpieces for God. We all represent God in all that we do and say. That's a radical concept that was just unheard of again. So we have one God and we have a people that are very good. So everything is good. And again, there's so much balance in that, isn't there? Um, Day one corresponds to day four. Day two corresponds to day six. uh, Five, day three corresponds to day six. So you've got, um, you know, uh, birds created uh, that uh, contrast with the sky. So you've got the skies and the heavenlies and then you've got birds and the flying animals and uh, you've got the sea and they contrast with the fish and you've got the the land and the certain plants and they contrast with animals that eat the plants. And then you've got um, the other types of uh, fruits and vegetation and that contrasts with the humans and and the people. And so you've got all this balance and perfect goodness, everything in alignment. But when God speaks, he says of man, he says, this is very good, very good. It's really interesting to me. I, I just think there's a lot in this passage, isn't there, that we maybe are just glossing over by reading it like a historical textbook. So the creation story really fascinates me. I love it, and there's much more to that, and we can probably we will dive more into that kind of stuff. But I still kind of go, but why? Right? You're like you're still like, okay, so he creates us, he's good. I guess that's a reason he's good. And we're good, so I mean it would be good to create good things, so I guess that's okay. Um, but why do it? And I guess just to touch on that, so a lot of the questions and the, the things that would be raised would be, well, if God's good and he creates good things and we're very good, then why are we not very good? Right? That's the question that is raised next, right? Because we're not very good, right? You don't have to flick on BBC News for very long to realize we're not very good. That was the question, right? And if you think it's bad now, it's 100,000, 10,000 times worse back then because we are in the most peaceful, loving, morally whole time that has ever existed on planet Earth, okay? And that's a very controversial thing to a lot of Christians who think it's supposed to get worse and worse and worse. And, oh, God, it's all going to pot and, you know, like it's all to hell in a handbasket. That's our message we love for some reason. I'm not really sure why Christians love that message. I really don't know. But we love it. Um, So we like that message. And so it gets really controversial when you say, actually, no, this is the best time in human history. There's never been a time where it's more healthy and whole and loving and peaceful. Uh, There hasn't been a time. Um, Maybe except for Pax Romana on the peaceful level. Um, But we'll talk about that. Um, So Genesis, we we forget as well, uh, and a lot of uh, 
preacher is preacher in Genesis, the creation story is Genesis 1 through to the end of book 3, right? Or chapter 3. So Genesis 1 through 3 is the creation story, right? Wrong. Genesis 1 through 2, 4 is a creation story. And Genesis 2, 4 through to the end of chapter 3 is, well, actually through to 11, is a completely different story that they've just been put together. Because they have completely different purposes, they're different authors, and they're different audiences. And so the first audience is going, who is God? Is God something we can trust? Who are we? Why are we here? And so it answers this question, God is good. He's always good. Everything he does is good, and everything he creates is good. We are good. We are in his image and likeness. It's good, good, good. The second question, though, that rises from that story, and this is why the, the second creation story is a slightly later text, um, because people then start going, wait, hold on, we're good? Really? Have you looked in a mirror, person that wrote this text? You know, like, we're not good. We're all a mess. Um, it answers the question. So why are we not good? And so then it, it dives into a completely different story, doesn't it? It talks about how we rebel from God. We don't do what he asks of us. He, he gave us freedom. He gave us life. He gave us this amazing opportunity. And we said, actually, we'd like to do it this way. And he gives us the freedom to do that. And that causes us to go out on our own into this own path that we have where we're constantly warring with God. We want to do it our way. God's offering is a different way. We sometimes take it and it goes well, but most of the time we go, actually, I don't want it. But even in that, it still doesn't answer the question, why? Why am I here? Why did you do this, right? Because if you start and think about this, right? So let's, let's take it fairly literally, the whole story of, of Genesis creation, all that different stuff. Again, if you don't believe in it extremely literally, if you don't believe in an actual Adam and Eve, and you believe more in a, in a creation of, of humanity, or if you believe in an evolution of humanity, whatever you believe, I actually don't mind. It's not a problem at all. But let's approach it just in a more literal perspective, that, just for the sake of it. I mean, so God, at some point, creates everything. He creates a, an earth and, and whatever and all that different stuff. And regardless of whether you believe in evolution, you believe the earth is 6,000 years, you believe something right in the middle, I don't know. Um, at some point, there was nothing apart from God, right? We've, I feel like we probably all agree on that on some level, right? Um, and so even if you believe the, the earth is billions of years old or the, well, the, the, the universe is billions of years old, there's still a point where it's not a thing on some level. And so in the beginning was God. That first verse, in the beginning was God. That's it. There was God. Nothing else. You ever think about that? It's a really interesting thought that there's just God. And he's not in heaven because he's not created heaven yet. It's just God. And he's just chilling out. And we know God to be three in one, right? It's just Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father. So it's three persons so deeply united and, and one, they are one. So three in one, again, brain hurts. Okay, great. You guys, have you read The Great Dance yet? No, not yet. You will. It's good. Prepare yourself. Um, but this trinity is so interwoven and so intermingled. And so you have this, this God just there, just sitting there. But, well, he's not sitting because there's no chairs, right? So, I mean, he's just there. He's not even standing because he's not to stand on it. And does, can he even stand? Is there a body? I don't even know, right? I mean, it's just God and the concept of, but because we, we need a framework to put God in. Like, we're, we're, there's no universe. There's nothing. What, what is he? Where is he? What's he? Ah, just hurts my head, right? But that's what it is. There's God. And this concept of a singular God that's three and one is really fascinating. You know, this is the, the only thing that really... Um, a lot of people, uh, a lot of uh, 
oneness proponents, so people that believe that there is only one God. There's a, a sect within Christianity, some will call them a cult. Um, uh, there's a sect within Christianity that believe that Jesus is God, and there isn't a Father, Holy Spirit, but Jesus is the Father and Holy Spirit. It's just, there, there's just one one person, and it's like three personalities or something, but it's not three persons. It's not three separate individual things because they believe, well, that's just polytheism. It's believing in multiple gods. And then there's people that go the whole other way, and we go, all right, well, there is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit, and they're just kind of similar, so we'll call them one. And that's, you know, a whole other argument. And it's a complex affair, right? Because it probably is what's right. Yes, yes, no, no right it's like is he three who are one is he one who is three yes is my answer to that my definitive answer is yes right i mean it's just it's too well but but it is interesting because this is a god unlike any other god and christianity is a religion unlike any religion there is no other religion that fits in this framework because there is no other religion that has a monotheistic perspective this way so there's very there is a few monotheistic um religions so you, you know you've got um all the religions of the day were pretty um uh polytheistic the only real monotheistic religion at the time was judaism when jesus stepped on the scene and then he creates christianity right so that's another monotheistic belief and then that evolved into islam and because you know, islam is an evolution of christianity right it was christians that became islam um, and became Muslims, and so. But again, a monotheistic perspective. Um, I say of evolution. That's much more of a kind of devolution. It's like stepping back into Judaism, basically. Um, but most Christians want to do that anyway. Um, that was a cutting remark. If anyone got that, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, but we have this this monotheistic perspective. But even within that, we've got Islam. Judaism, Christianity, Christianity is a radically different approach because this one God isn't one. He's three in one. And so actually within this one God is the capacity for relationship. As we see all these mono, uh, these polytheistic religions, the, the religions of uh, the Norse gods or the Roman gods or the Greek gods, there are all these different ones. There, there's all these different gods and they, they fall in love and they get married, they have kids. And, I mean, it's, it's relational, but it requires lots of different gods. And there's constantly power struggles and they kill each other and they, you know, there's a lot of dynamics when you introduce relationship, right? And we all know that. Um, but Christianity has the relational aspect with a singular God. So Judaism gets rid of all the, the trauma and the drama and all that different stuff and goes, no, there's just one God. It's not all this, you know, vying for power and there's not good gods and bad gods and whatever. It's just one God and he's good. The problem with that is a God can't be love. And that's the framework for Christianity, right? Do you know that in the New Testament, there's only two phrases said of God that are emphatic statements. So God is this. Can you believe that? In the whole New Testament, it's only said twice that God is something. There's lots of things that it talks about him, and we can infer from that God is this. So, you know, we can infer God is a healer because Jesus healed a lot. But it doesn't say God is healer. There's only two things it says. It says God, and both of them are in First uh, John, God is love, and God is light. 
It's the only two things that we know emphatically about God without our own interpretation required. So we can interpret from Jesus, God is a healer. And I'd say that's a very good interpretation. I don't think it takes a huge stretch of the imagination, right? But that's an interpretation because it doesn't say emphatically God is a healer. But it does say emphatically God is love. And that's interesting, isn't it? God is love. It's not God loves. And then from his loving actions, we infer God is love or anything like that. But it says God is love. Have you ever thought about that? How can you be love if you're a singular God? So to the Jewish folks, that's a hard concept. Because God can be love with people. So as soon as people are on the, on the, in, the, in the picture, then God can be love. Because his very nature is to, to give. Because if you look at um, 1 Corinthians, right? Our great treaties of love. God is patient. God is, uh, or love, <laughs> love is kind. Love is patient. You know, all these different amazing things. Um, you know, we often switch that out. And we say, why don't we replace love for God? It's a great exercise, right? And so, but one of those phrases is really interesting. Love is not self-focused. It focuses on the other, right? Love never looks at itself. It always looks at the other. That's a major problem for every God in the possible cosmos apart from the Christian God. Because in the beginning was God. He was on his own. It was just him. And a Jewish God can't be love because he can't be other focused because there is nothing else. It's just him. The God of Islam, Allah, can't be love because it's just him. But the Christian God is three in one. So in the beginning was the father and he spent every second of every day where there was no days or seconds Maybe there was days. There was days when there was no moon or planet or anything else anyway. But never mind. Uh, every single second he spends lavishing his love on the Holy Spirit, on Jesus. But Jesus, every single second is spent lavishing his love on the Holy Spirit, on the Father. And the Holy Spirit, every single second, Father, you're so amazing. I love you. I love you. I love you. Jesus, I love you. And it's other focus. And we have a God that can be love and this is a god who is other focused and you know you stop and think about this it sounds pretty good right i mean it sounds pretty holy perfect complete wonderful right i mean it sounds good does anyone think there's a potential problem here i don't right i mean you've got god god and god i mean it's just nothing other than god that seems like a fairly safe framework for nothing going wrong and for everything being perfect and pure and holy and wonderful and good like, can you imagine God going, this isn't very good, right? I mean, obviously not. It's, it's perfect. It's complete. And does God have a lack as he's sitting there going, it's a bit boring, though, just all this loving show. Uh, play football. You know what I mean? Like, I, but you know, God isn't lacking anything. And, 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 and it's interesting to me because it's in this place of God just being love, being light, that he decides to do the Genesis 1 story. In the beginning was God. This is the, the first verse. We have God and God alone. God on his own. God with nothing else. There's literally nothing else. There's no heavens. There's no earth. There's no universe. There's nothing but God. And he goes, "Ah, oh, let's change this. Right? I mean, that's a pretty big decision. 
Because this has been for eternity, right? Which again, we can't remotely fathom. But for eternity, this has been the case. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just loving one another. And they go, hold on. Let's change what's going on here and do something different. Like, that's a drastic, radical, like crazy shift. And what's amazing about it is they did this, right? Because you start to think, really? This is what you did, right? Again, you switch on the news and you're like, oh, God, this has gone downhill, right? I mean, from up there to where we are now, it's not the best thing ever, right? And things might be getting better, but it's not that. It's not where we started here with just God's perfect, complete, whole, everything spotless and wonderful and nothing wrong ever. And yet God goes, let's do this. That's fascinating to me, right? I mean, that really fascinates me. And, you know, the only, the only um, explanation as I look at this I can possibly see of why would you do that is because God is love. And love is focused on other. And in this place of God loving, there's, there's a conversation that happens at some point that says, what if we could love more stuff, more beings? What if there was more to love? What if more things could experience our love? And I think that is the, the thought, the, the spark that creates everything. Because, you know, we talk about creation. Why are we here? And, you know, look at the Westminster Catches and the purpose of man is to glorify God. And it's like, what a pile of crap in one way, right? I mean, I believe that in one sense. But honestly, what a load of crap. We, God made us to make him feel better. Is that really what we believe? Do we really believe that in the beginning was God and God was insecure? Right? I mean, that's what we're preaching. In the beginning was God and God kind of needed a pat on the back from billions of humans worshiping him. In the beginning was God, and he wasn't quite sure he was all that. Let's create some people and get some external third-party feedback, right? It's probably not done much for his confidence either. If we look at it, I don't know. There's a lot of people that don't really think he's all that. So, um, but is that what we think? That God created us to worship him? I'll create people, and then they can just lavish me with praise. It's, it's not. It's not love. It's insecurity, it's neediness, it's weird. I don't know if I like that God, right? Of which the staunch evangelical Calvinists would be like, well, you don't have to, you can go straight to hell, Uh, right? But because that's the way God is. But I don't think it is the way God is. I don't see God creating us so that we can worship him. I see a God creating us so that he can lavish his affection on us. And in response, what do we do? We worship him, right? And in heartbeat, we're like, oh my God, that's amazing. So like, it's not like he gets less worship from it. If anything, he probably gets more, right? If you create a picture of a good God, more people want to be in relationship with him. It's a, found, like, it's a radical perspective, I know. Um, you know, we've been avoiding that for millennia. Um, but if you create a nice God, a good God, a God that looks like Jesus, people actually like him. You know, I love this exercise. I love to go into like, you know, if you're in a pub and you just chat to a stranger or whatever, I love just asking them, what do you think about the church. It's fascinating people's responses of like, what do you think about Christians or the church? And they give you these amazing things of like, oh, a bunch of like, you know, pedophiles that are talking about, you know, certain like movements or, oh, they're just hypocrites or this or that. I mean, they've got these pretty strong opinions about Christianity and the church. 
You ask that same person, what do you think about the person of Jesus? You ever thought about that person? What do you think about him? I've never heard anyone say anything bad. Oh, yeah, he was really wise. Or, oh, he's, he was that, he just loved. And he's got these amazing teachings on love. And it's like, and I just love that. I'm like, so what do you think is the, the difference between these two? Like, what do you think causes that, right? Because most people have no ill feeling about Jesus. They've just got a lot of ill feeling about what we do with him. Anyway, so it's just better to have a good God. Um, and that's what this is. This is a God who is good, who is love. And he goes, I want to love other. And he creates more stuff to love. And he lavishes his love on everything that is created. And it's fascinating to me. Like, if you ever, you ever stop and think about it, like the whole element of the fall. Have you ever thought? Because this whole this goes really south really quickly, right? Well, we don't know that. I mean, there could have been a garden for a billion years, but I don't know. Adam could be a billion in four days, and Eve went and grabbed an apple and went, "Here, have a bite of this." Right? We don't know, right? And if there was a garden, right? Because a lot of people would say, "Well, there's not even a garden." So, like, there's a whole bunch of elements to this. But you know, it went bad quickly in the story, right? <laughs> I don't know what day it was because we stopped counting at seven, but. You know, it wasn't long after that in the story that Adam and Eve were like, oh, let's just do something different, right? And it fascinates me because did God not know that, right? Does God not know the future? Does God like, in the beginning, oh, create these people. I'm going to love them. It's going to be amazing. And, uh, and then I'll put a tree right in the middle that will kill them if they eat it. Where did you go to put that, God? Well, should we put it out the garden? Should we put it on the top of a mountain like in, the, like in you know, Antarctica, where they can't even ever get to. Let's, in fact, let's put it at the bottom of the sea, miles and miles and miles below sea level, where they just have no hope of getting it. Let's put the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right out the way. I was, nah, that's a good idea, Gabriel. But what I'm thinking is we'll put it right in the center of the tree. Okay, all right. Well, should we make it like really, really tall with a really slippery trunk with all the fruit completely out of hand? No, no, no. Let's bring it right down so they can just grab a fruit if they want. All right, should we make the fruit as unappealing as possible? It smells like rancid bin juice when you haven't taken the bin out for two weeks and it looks like dog poo you know let's make it look like that and smell no no let's make it appealing so you know they really want a bite of that you gotta imagine some of the feedback god was getting on this idea right on the whole garden thing and then god hold on rub me by this again right this is gonna completely ruin everything yeah your entire plan is gonna go completely awry and you want to do this yeah yeah yeah. and i've had this other idea remember that guy satan pain in the arse wasn't he right Let's put him in the garden as a snake that can talk and put him on the tree. That's a great idea, right? At some point, people are like, God, okay, you have lost your mind. This is a bad idea, right? And we forget the snake is on the tree in the garden because creation is finished at this point, day seven. And God saw everything as it was and said, this is very good, which gives you an idea of how big a deal Satan is to God, right? He doesn't even care that he's in the garden. He's like, oh, no, this is still very good. But it does open some questions, right? I mean, of like, what the heck is going on, right? I, I feel like we just glance over this. We don't like to look at the fall because it messes with our theology, right? But God really didn't make it hard for us to fall, did he? I mean, if we're honest, it says that the tree is in the center of the garden. He, he put a flipping docking snake on it. I mean, like, that's just a whole nother level. I mean, it's one thing to put it in the center, one thing to make it look really nice, and, oh, that looks nice, I'll have a bite of that, right? It's a whole nother level to be like, right, let's put Satan right there and have him just, like, you know, free reign to talk to people. I mean, that's just a whole nother level that just, I'm like, what's going on here, right? So that's going on. 
But then you've got to go, oh, well, he, maybe he just didn't know. Like, I mean, is that an option? Right? You could be open theistic. I mean, that, that is an option, and it's a fairly safe option. Um, there's a lot of Bible verses to support open theism and stuff. Like that. I think it's a very compelling argument. But what, one thing that kind of throws it into whack is, have you ever noticed in the scriptures in the, in the New Testament, um, the passage that really messes with my head is that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the earth. Have you ever read that and gone, what? Right? Because you read it and you're like, no, wrong. Christ was crucified roughly kind of 30 AD, give or take. Right? I mean, duh. We all know that. Right? I mean, we can historically track that. I mean, it's recorded. Christ was crucified about 30 AD. So what are you smoking, Peter? Like, I mean, you were there. Crying out loud. I mean, that's a really big error given you were there. You mean, you really typoed that hard. Right? Christ is crucified before the foundation. So what's he saying there, right? I mean, he obviously knows when Christ is crucified. He was there. He was denying him, remember? So what's he saying? And I think he's saying something much more profound. He's saying that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the earth. That before God created anything, he knew what was going to happen. And Christ was crucified. But that's mental as well, right? Because we, we like to think of this. Like, let's, let's look at the fall again, right? So we've got God walking, you know, God, again, is that Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or is it all of them? I don't know how it works. But God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, right? Because he doesn't like extreme temperatures. I don't know how that works either. Um, you know, don't move anywhere hot. We're safe in Manchester. God will walk with us all day, right? <laughs> Even in summer, God is with us. Um, but God walks with us in the cool of the day. And, and then, I don't know, it gets too warm, so he leaves. Um, again, I don't you. <laughs> this is when you start reading Genesis as a literal book, right? This is what happens, right? So I'm kind of being a bit messing around here, but, you know, so God, you know, he pops back up to heaven and, uh, and so you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and they're hanging out in heaven and they're kind of keeping an eye on Adam and Eve. Now, like, we probably should keep an eye on them because we did put a dangerous tree right in the middle of the thing and make it look amazing. So they're keeping an eye on that and then, you know, Father's like, hey, Jesus, you want to go for like a coffee or something? We'll leave Holy Spirit in charge. Or, it's like, yeah, okay. So they, they pop off and Holy Spirit's keeping an eye on And then like Gabriel comes in and is like, Oh, Holy Spirit, I need your opinion. Can't find Father Jesus. Oh, no, it's there over at Starbucks. Um, um, but, but you know, like, what, what is it? Oh, well, I, I was wondering, we're doing a cake for Michael's birthday. Um, what do you think he'd like? Chocolate, red velvet, you know? So they're having this conversation. And Holy Spirit looks back and he's like, <gasps> I took my eyes off for 30 seconds and they've eaten the fruit. And he's freaking out, right? Holy Spirit, you know, Father, Jesus come back and they're like, what's happening? The Holy Spirit's pulling his hair out. He doesn't have hair, but he does have hair. I don't know how it works, right? He's freaking out and they're like, what's going on? He's like, I, it was just like 30 seconds. It was Michael's fault. It was Michael. You know, we're canceling his birthday party, right? And it's like, but they're freaking out. And he's like, what's going on? And like, I don't know. He ate the, ate the fruit. And Father and Jesus are like, oh, what are we going to do? Ah, ah, we didn't see this coming, right? It's like, well, you probably could have seen it coming if you looked at some of the stupid things you did in the process of planning this, right? You know, <laughs> But it's like, what's happened here? This is kind of how most evangelicals, you know, we don't paint it in such a ridiculous way, but this is kind of how we paint the fall. God gets caught out in some like, oh, no, this didn't happen. I better rustle up a plan B. Right? I mean, we're honest. I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion on this. I'm just throwing it around here. Um, what's the fall plan A? D- get that into your theology. What do you do with that? 
What do you do with a God who says, no, Christ is going to be crucified before the foundation of the earth? Because if, if God knows, right? So then we, we've got God and Father, Son, Holy Spirit in heaven going, oh, what, what are we going to do? I mean, was, 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 we didn't see this coming. And it's like, oh, gosh, uh, we better think about this. Um, we could um, kill them. Nah, it's probably a bit harsh. I mean, they just ate fruit. Um, we could, uh, oh, gosh, uh, we could just start again. And it's still kind of the same deal. We could um, create another planet with other beings, like aliens, and just leave this one and just hope it like fixes itself or you know just leave it to its own devices um no that's pretty, pretty harsh i mean we created this mess we did put the tree there um okay what else and then jesus kind of goes I, i've got an idea now this is a bit crazy all right but hear me out we could wait a whole bunch of time like a really 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 long time just see what happens just watch and get really angry when they mess up even though we kind of created this mess and then much later once we're really 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 angry you could be like, right, I'm going to kill you all. Actually, wait, no, I'm going to kill Jesus instead. And I could go and I could die. And then that would make everything better. Holy Spirit's like, wait, how, how does that make it better? <laughs> it's like, don't worry, it's penal substitution. The Calvinists will explain it. Um, <laughs> that's not how I see it playing out either. I don't see Jesus as this like harebrained, oh, crap, we need a plan B. Quick, let's throw something together. Let's kill Jesus, Right? But again, we see Jesus dying on a cross as plan B. Peter sees it as plan A. Because it's not even that it's like, oh, well, this is a possibility. It might happen. It's a, before the foundation of the earth. So before we have anything. So we've got in the beginning was God. And God's chilling out. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just being one, enjoying unity, enjoying completeness. And they go, let's create this. And then they sit and go, now it's going to go really badly. They're going to eat this fruit that we've decided to put in the middle. They know that because in the beginning, Jesus decided he was going to be crucified for them. So they go, okay, well, and that's what we'll do. And then we'll kill you and that will absolve all sin. It will create a new creation. It will do this whole wonderful, amazing thing. Right. Great. We happy with that? No. Like what, 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 what hairbrained idea is plan A. Let's go and die. For this creation, right? Imagine you, you start an ant farm and you, you, uh, the seller comes up to you and goes, you want to buy an ant farm? And you're like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. Only thing is, at some point, you're going to have to become an ant and get brutally murdered by the rest of the ants. I, I think I'll just get a dog, right? I mean, like, at what point do you go, yeah, brilliant. This is amazing. Let's do this. And I'll tell you what, it's just, right? I mean, like, I'm like, what? How is this plan A? How is it that they sit down in this perfect, amazing, wonderful thing and go, let's do this, Right? I'm just like, what is going on? But God is love. And God doesn't think of himself. He thinks of his creation. He thinks of loving. And he thinks, that's a really amazing way to love people. Oh, that's even more loving than like if they just all just lived in a garden somewhere and ate other fruit. I don't know. Like, I don't know what he's thinking. But for some reason, he's thinking it's a good idea. And then you start to think, right, hold on. So God, he's in this place, right? And there's no, I don't know what it is, right? Because what is God? Is he spirit? Is he got some sort of body or whatever the deal is? And, and so you've got this Father, Son, Holy Spirit in this place is nothing. And they're perfect and they're wonderful and they're great. And in this whole plan, part of this plan is we're going to create these beings and there's going to be like a creation. There's plants and trees and cats and dogs. And then there's these humans. And one of these, these humans Jesus, as much as you can split apart the Trinity, right? So the person of Jesus, however that works, is then going to become one of these people. 
And then we gloss over this fact. We gloss over the fact that Jesus becomes a person. So we, 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 we're kind of a bit Gnostic, if we're honest, because we, we don't mind that Jesus becomes a, a, a baby boy and he's a person you can prod, right? Because Gnostics didn't believe he was physical. Like they, they can't believe in a, in a God of, of physical because physical is bad, spiritual is good. That's kind of the core elements, one of the core elements of Gnosticism. And so they actually preached. It's quite funny, right? You ready for this? Um, what are we doing? We're great. They preached. Um, this is really, really messed up. It's kind of funny. There's two ways they, they handled Jesus, the person Jesus, because they do worship Jesus as the Son of God. They believed that Jesus was just a spiritual being and that everyone was just like, just tricked by it, right? And that's how he walked through the crowds or whatever, but, but people couldn't touch him. Now, there's a lot in the Bible that really messes with that, right? People pulling on his clothes, you know, in the episode, like, everyone's touching you. He's like got people touching his like fingers and whatever. And it's actually quite interesting that that, that passage about Thomas is actually quite a late text. And it's thought that it's added to um, contradict some of the Gnostic teachings. And people are like, no, no, look, this happened. And that clearly shows that Jesus was physical body. Um, but we've got Jesus. He comes in the flesh. So that's one option. The other option um, that they work around this is that Jesus is a spirit. It's Jesus, the spirit of God. He possesses some random dude, right? And then just goes on his way and then on the cross just leaves. So you've got baby Steve, right? Or whatever. And Jesus possesses him and then like moves him around for 33 years. And then he's like, all right, I'm on a cross. I better get out of here. And Steve kind of just comes to going, what is going on? Right? But this is honestly, genuinely one of the Gnostic beliefs. It's kind of funny. Um, not for Steve. Um, <laughs> Just so messed up. But Gnostics will work around. But, but they love physical bad, spiritual good, right? And we have to admit we can be very Gnostic at times ourselves, right? So we, we can be quite Gnostic in our view of Jesus. Though, because Jesus came in the flesh. He's this baby. He grows up as a boy. You know, he learns to, to be more um, uh, obedient to his father. He grows. He, he, he grows in favor. He grows in all these different ways. He learns who he is, what he's about, his father's business, all this different stuff. As he progresses, he continues to progress, and then he dies, and he dies as a man, right? We've got lots of evidence that he raises up, and so he comes back to life, and obviously that's his, like, mankind over, right? We almost have this picture of, like, Jesus is up in heaven, right, because they've created heaven now. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they're enjoying heaven. They're watching this, and it's going crazy, and God's, like, wanting to beat everyone up, and Jesus is like, don't worry, I'm going to go soon and fix this. So Jesus then, like, kind of like, looks around and goes, all right, better enjoy this. My last moment of being, like, God, and I've got to be a man. You know, 33 years, he's big, like, <gasps> jumps into earth or whatever and gets through being a crappy little man for 33 years. And then he's dead and it's, it's over and done with, right? And he rises up and he's still a man. It's got to be a bummer, right? Jesus, the man. God is a man. He's just raised from the dead and he's a man. But it's okay. He hangs around for about 50 days or so, and then he ascends into heaven, right? And so this body just crumples to the ground, and the spirit floats up into heaven, right? No. The man goes into heaven, and Jesus is a man. But then, like, you know, once he gets into heaven, like, physical bodies don't matter, and it's just done away with and everything anyway, so it's not a problem. Except the first person that sees Jesus, Stephen, the heavens open, and he sees the Father, and he sees at the right hand of the Father, the man... Jesus. Oh no, Jesus is in heaven and he's still a man. This is not good, right? And then you see uh, where Paul talks about the man, Jesus, who intercedes before the throne for us. We see John has a revelation. Jesus shows up to him as a man. I mean, Jesus is a man. And it's not like he became a man for like a few years to fix some stuff. He is a man 
forever. This is a permanent decision. Have you thought about that? So now we go right back to the beginning and God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, chilling out. Nothing exists. Everything's perfect. Everything's complete. Everything's whole. And you go, yeah, we'll create this, blah, blah, blah. And then it's going to be a fall, but it's okay. We'll fix it and it'll all be better. And there'll be a new creation. And it'll get better and better and better. And it'll be wonderful. Except Jesus is going, but I'm going to have to become a man forever. So then you go, well, is God less God now? It's like one third of the Trinity, if you can break up the Trinity that way. Is one third of the Trinity now sullied? Is it ruined? Is it broken? Is it tarnished? Because I don't know about you, but I see myself in the mirror and I think, not God, right? Some days I do, but you know, <laughs> it's my good hair days. Um, but right, I mean, we don't go, oh, wow, this stuff right here, this is good, right? This is not how we see God. And so then you think, right, well, Jesus crucified before foundation of the earth. He decides, yeah, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to become a man forever. And then you think, well, He's got to have in the back of his head a few thoughts, right? What would be in your thoughts, right? So you think um, you're going to create uh, – like, let me ask you a question. If I came to you and I said, in one year, you're going to die, right? Really good prophetic word right there, um, right? Don't give those prophetic words, okay? I hope that was covered in prophetic week. Um, in one year, you're going to die. But if you want, I can transfer who you are, your, your mind, your emotions, your spirit. I can transfer that into something else. You just let me know what it is in one year, right? How many of you are just going to be like, um, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know. Oh, screw it. Right? I'll just, in fact, just I'll tell you now, I want to be that chair. Fine, right? How many of you would like to live for the rest of your life as a chair, right? You would be able to talk. You wouldn't be able to smell. You wouldn't be able to feel. You wouldn't be able to hug your loved ones. You wouldn't be able to hear them, right? I mean, it's not a very good thing to be for the rest of your life, right? So you go, oh, well, I'll be a, a dog, right? Because dogs are happy, at least, um, right? But the dog could hear, um, it could smell, it could, it could feel, it could touch. You know, you could cozy up with your loved one. You can't really talk or communicate, though, can you? You can't, you know, yeah, it's not really, right? So, but you've you got to be thinking, right? I want to be as much me as possible, right? That's got to be your main thought is how can I still be me? Maybe with some cool extra features, right? Like laser eye beams or something like that. I don't know. Um, right? Because you might as well. Um, but that's got to be your main thought. I'm not giving up who I am. I want to be me. You're talking to like robotic technicians in Japan or something going, right, I want to be able to walk. I want to talk. I want to feel. I want to smell. I want to see. I want to do everything I can do. Make me another human being that I can just be in, right? I mean, that's basically what you want, right? You want to be you. And so God's giving up who he is, not counting it equality with God, right? Philippians, like, but instead going, I'm going to become this physical being. It's a big decision, right? It's huge, monumental decision. And so what does he become? He sits down and he thinks, I need to become something that is 100% compatible with who I am. 100% compatible with God. I cannot be this thing and be any less God or the whole thing will be ruined. I have to be 100% God and 100% what I'm going to call man. As he sits down and he starts thinking, he starts creating. And 
It's not like I was lacking in time here. He had eternity, right? So when he decides what he's going to make, he's, he's thoughtless there. I guarantee it. That's God, so he probably didn't have to think it through. He just, boom, right? I don't know. I don't know how his brain works. He doesn't have a brain. Maybe he does have a brain. Who knows? Um, but he comes to this conclusion that that's what I'm going to make. That right there is 100% compatible with who I am. I can be in that body and be God. That's quite a staggering thought. It challenges a lot of what we think God is, right? Because there's certain things that we associate with God. God is everywhere. Well, God isn't everywhere in that body. So that's obviously not something that makes God God. It's an attribute of God, but it's not what makes him God. But in that body, God can love. He can touch. He can feel. He can see. He can smell. He can communicate. He can be with others. He can do all these different amazing things. But that right there is 100% compatible with who I am. And this is what then is really surprising is Jesus comes on the scene, right, as a man. And this is amazing because we, we know the Messiah is coming. And we, um, we've got loads of lore as the gods showing up on earth in different religions and different cultures. Gods had shown up, but they'd looked radically different to us, right? Any likeness they had to us was grossly exaggerated, right? So you, maybe you have a few gods that look like us, you know, like your Zeus or whatever, but the guy is ripped and he's like 20 foot tall. And he's got a lightning bolt in his hand. You know what I mean? Like this guy is not really that similar, right? No one else really has a 38 pack, you know? I mean, like, come on. <laughs> Just me. Um, but Jesus shows up with this amazing announcement. If you see me, you're looking at God. And why did we hate that? Because we were looking in a mirror. We were looking at a human being. We did not like that God looks like me. Because it messed with our concept. It took away our excuses. It took away so much, right? Because that's probably our biggest excuse, right? I'm only human. Well, only human is the best thing that God has ever done. And if it wasn't, we wouldn't be here, right? I mean, because that's the thing, right? If there was a better thing for God to be 100% God in, he'd be in that. He wouldn't have picked humanity. He wouldn't pick to be in a, I don't know, Jew. In a probably five foot two Middle Eastern looking man who apparently, according to the Bible, didn't look like that much. That's what God looks like. And it's what God is 100% compatible with. And that messes with us because we wanted God to come in as this giant with a big beard and he's kicking butt and he just comes in and he's God and he's a baby, first and foremost, right? That's God. It's 100% God. That's not in any way lacking any godness. It's a baby. It's pooing itself. <laughs> Something's changing its diaper, right? It can't speak. It cannot speak. And it's 100% God. What do you do with this concept? Like, what do you do with this stuff? Like, that hurts my head. But I guarantee you, that's the best thing God could come up with. Because if he could come up with something better, he would have. This is what is 100% compatible with God. 
And then it just really messes our theology, right? And we'll, we'll stop here and we'll have a break. But it's our excuse, isn't it? Well, I'm only human. Yeah. Like, yeah, God's with me and he lives in me and all these different things. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, I mean, look at me. I'm just a human being. I mean, how much can you expect from me? Well, apparently a lot. Because you were created to be 100% compatible with God. Like, you were compared. So it's not like, you know, when it says like, oh, God lives in you. You've got the fullness of the spirit in you. The fullness of God abides in you. You go, yeah, yeah, okay, that's nice. But you're like, I don't believe it. Right? I mean, how many of you actually really fully believe that? Sometimes, maybe, on a really good day for about 30 milliseconds. But like, ah, I really struggle to believe it. Why? Because God can't fit in this thing. Right? I mean, really? But actually, no, no, no. That's actually why you were made. Because that's ultimately the message of the gospel, isn't it? It's not just that God becomes man, but that he reveals that man was designed to have God in him all along. You know, when we read the Old Testament, it's fascinating to me that, you know, things like there's so much subtleness throughout the, the scriptures. But one of my favorite things that uh, is really compelling to me is, is the, the temple, uh, the tabernacle that um, they built, that they were traveling around with before they had the temple. This this place that God lived in. He lived in a building. Now, what's really interesting about what they made it out of was they made it out of skin. Not human skin, don't worry. What's interesting, actually, is they made it out of dolphin skin. Have you ever thought of a more obscene request, okay, right? You've just escaped Egypt, okay? Again, how you interpret the scriptures and all that different stuff, is, there's room for interpretation. But they've just escaped Egypt, right? Now they're wandering around in a desert, okay? So you're walking around in a desert. You've just come out of captivity, and God goes, I want you to build a, a tabernacle to worship me in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live in that tabernacle. I'm like, yeah, okay, great. Give us the dimensions. What do you want it made of? Dolphin skin, please. Really? Really, God? Yeah, poor, poor place skin. Uh, not the whole structure, but a good chunk of it. Yeah. So can you, can you stop and think about that? You're like, right, hold on. I'm in a desert just outside Egypt. Nearest land mass, uh, water mass would be uh, Dead Sea, which does not have dolphins in it. It's not much in it because it's a dead sea. It doesn't sustain life after the whole uh, Lake of Fire incident. Because, um, by the way, that's what the dead sea is, by the way. It's the Lake of Fire. I don't know if you've ever come across that. But that's because that's where um, Sodom and Gomorrah, on the, on the border of the dead sea, fire comes out. Everything turns to salt. The dead sea is just salt, isn't it? And it's ridiculous. And it's the Lake of Fire. It's what the Jews called it, which then makes very interesting interpretation for some of your end times or... Uh, posthumous uh, passages because the lake of fire is referring to that sea. Now, what that infers is a whole bunch of other stuff, and I'm really going off the point here. Um, right, anyway, there's not many land masses, uh, water masses here that have dolphins, is what I'm saying. It's quite a funny response. So, what's my point in this? Nothing, really. Um, I just think it's funny that God's like, could you use some dolphins, please? I mean, like, come on. Um, like, I mean, really, you're in the desert. It's just amazing. Um, anyway, but it's skin. Top to bottom, different types of animals, it's skin. And God's message consistently throughout the Old Testament, leading to the New Testament, is I don't reside in buildings. I reside in skin. I was made to reside in you. It's consistently throughout the Old Testament, constantly, 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 God's begging people to let them in. 
Um, and we see him doing it frequently. He puts Gideon on like a glove, it says. He, he, I love that imagery, right? You, you know that you pull that glove on and it just like fits. And you're like, oh, it fits like a glove, right? That's how God puts you on. He just squeezes himself into you. Every single pore is full of God. And so, you know, we look at Jesus and we go, oh, wow, well, it's great for Jesus. And yeah, Jesus was fully human and fully God, so a bit different for him. But actually, we are fully human, full of God. Full of God. There's no God that is not in you. And so when we look at Jesus, Jesus isn't just going, hey, I'm God, I've shown up to rescue today. He's showing up going, hey, I'm God, by the way, you're looking in a mirror. This is what you can do. This is who you are. This is what you're made to be. When I said image and likeness, I meant it. So why are we here? We're here because God loves. Because God not only loves, but God is love. And the most radical expression of God's love is to create a being that can be 100% woven into his being, into his trinity. He weaves us into himself and says, I will come and live in you. And it won't be a mismatch. It's not like a cat and a dog trying to marry. You know, I mean, this is, we were made to be. You, you, you have always, from the beginning, been made to be compatible with me. This is why we're here. To be with God. For no other reason. What it looks like is going to look different to every person. Because we're all unique and we're all wonderfully made. And when God fills us and we walk in that, it's going to look different for everyone. But that is why you're here. To be loved by God. To be with God. To be full of God. And it's not an incompatibility. It's 100% compatible. Thank you for listening to the I Destiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.